couple of months, and the Apostles' Creed is an, an ancient statement of belief, which in just a few short paragraphs really sums up the fundamentals of what it is to follow Jesus. Uh, we're coming into the end now. We're going to look at uh, uh, one line today where it talks about the forgiveness of sins, which you would have heard read to you already this morning. Uh, and to help us to understand that, uh, what we're going to do is uh, Elizabeth is going to read to us Psalm 130. So over to Elizabeth. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is a very uh, important subject, particularly at the moment when we look around the world, so many stories, so, so much pain around us in society. Forgiveness is a very important thing for us to understand. And forgiveness is also it's a very difficult subject because as we're going to look at as we go through this today, Real biblical forgiveness is, is costly, costly for the person forgiving. But before we really get into the, or to help us to get into the subject of forgiveness, first of all, we have to talk about, we have to talk about sin, um, which sin isn't a very popular subject. We don't like to talk about sin. And partly one of the reasons we don't like to talk about it is because I think we don't really understand sin. Whether you're a believer in Jesus or you wouldn't describe yourself as a follower of Christ, we just don't really understand what sin is and how it affects us. And we've all been tricked, we've all been deceived, we've all believed some lies about sin which have warped our understanding of it. So let me just work through some of those. First of the first lie that we've understood about sin is that we think sin are just sins are just petty misdemeanors. They're just little peccadilloes, like little surface issues that aren't really important. Just like little things that we do, tiny small bad moments. But the way that the Bible describes sin, even here in Psalm 130 where the psalm starts with the psalmist saying, out of the depths I cry to you. And he's reflecting on his own sin, his own need for God's mercy. And he's calling out of the depths of his heart. Because sin is a, not a surface issue, it's a deep 
issue. When Jesus talks about sin, you can read about it in Matthew 5, in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus takes uh, the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, and he applies them right into our heart. He talks about the commandment where it talks about adultery and says even if you've looked lustfully at a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And then he talks the same about anger and some other of the commandments, saying actually if we've committed them in our heart, we've already, we've already sinned. And what he's trying to help us to see is that sin isn't a surface thing. Sin comes from the very depths of our being. It's an issue of deep desire. The word it uses in Psalm 130 here is it talks about iniquities, which is another way of talking about sin by focusing on the, the corruption of the heart. That it's not that there's just a bruise on the outside of the fruit, but there's a rottenness inside. That's where sin comes from. Secondly, the second lie we've believed are, is that sin is a controllable thing. That we're somehow in control of all our desires, that we can keep them in check. Whereas actually, sinful desire controls us. This deep desire controls us. We'd like to think that we're, that we're rational beings that we decide to do things, we think about things, we choose our behavior, we decide in our heads what desires we're gonna occupy our time with. But we're not actually like that at all. The writer Jonathan Haidt in his book, The Righteous Mind, uses an illustration where he talks about the, the elephant and the rider. Whereas we like to think that the way that desire, sinful desire controls us is a bit like a, a dog on a lead that we've got the leash and our desires may want to pull us off in different directions, but we can just sort of snap the dog back into line whenever we want. Whereas Jonathan Haidt says that actually, it's more like we're riding an elephant. That the rider of an elephant, he has maybe a small piece of control over where the elephant goes. But if the elephant decides it's gonna suddenly stomp through the park or crash through those bushes, there's not really anything that you can do about it. And we're the same. Although we'd like to think we're in control, often it's our desires that are controlling us. Sin is a disease, a virus that's got right into our core and affects all of us. The third lie we've believed is that sin will deliver on its promises. But what sin actually does is it always overpromises and it, it underdelivers. It makes us all sorts of promises about the fulfillment, the satisfaction it will offer us, but it always will come up short. Never really fulfills us. It always overpromises. Perhaps the fourth, perhaps the biggest lie we've believed about sin and one you can see happening in the world around us at the moment is we think that sin is an issue that's over there. It's somebody else's problem, another society's issue that they need to fix. 
which may be true, but also sin is in here. It's not just over there, it's in our own hearts. So when it comes to the issue of climate change, we get upset about you know, countries in the Far East, their factories all producing all sorts of chemicals polluting the atmosphere. We want to blame them, tell them to fix it. Whereas actually, perhaps the problem is our own materialism, our desire for more and more products and devices and tablets and phones and laptops that are all made in the Far East. Actually, we're just as much to blame as anybody else. When it comes to the issue of racism, the huge issue that's circulating the globe at the moment, and we would like to blame other people. We would like to point our finger and tell other people that they need to fix the problem. But as Dan was sharing with us last week, we all have judgments, prejudgments that we make of people in our own hearts. All the time we're judging people, deciding what they're thinking, deciding what they're like, positively or negatively. And racism isn't an issue that's just over there. It's an issue in our own hearts that we need to reflect upon and bring it to Jesus. Because that's part of the grand delusion of sin. We're blinded to it. We just don't see the sin in our own lives. We've been trained in our culture to think that we're the victims, that other people are the oppressors, that they're the ones that are stomping down on us and, and we're the ones that just receive all the bad things that happen to us, that we're the victims. Whereas actually, we're the perpetrators as well, that we all have violence and sinful desire in our own hearts. Because one of the ways that sin will deceive us is that sin uh, confabulates. It's an English word that means sin creates a fable. It makes up a story. Most of us, we think that we're better than we really are. We think we're more impressive than we really are. That we inflate our own, uh, our own achievements, our own goodness, and we deflate the achievements and goodness of the people around us. And that when we see sin, we do the opposite. We deflate our responsibility and we inflate other people's responsibility, that they've got to fix it, that we can get angry about what they've done. And there's often, that's often a, a good righteous anger to be angry at sin that we see perpetrated on other people it's okay to be angry at those things but at the same time we must reflect on our own hearts because that's the one thing that we can change with God's help and what happens in this psalm is the psalmist comes to this place of realizing the depths of his own sin and he asks this question. He says, who can stand? Who can stand? See, right now around the world, uh, in different cities, all sorts of demonstrations are taking place. Statues are being toppled, being pulled down. Racism's being called out. 
uh, heroes from history are being removed because of their past sin, their past guilt. But yet the reality is, is where should that stop? <laughs> if we're going to start pulling down all the different statues, then what about the idols in our own hearts? Who, who can cast the first stone? We're all guilty in many different ways. In Psalm 14, it says, there is none who does good, not even one. There is none who does good. And if we were to count up the iniquities in our hearts as the psalmist does, and we're very good at counting up sins, but we're very good at counting up other people's sins. I don't know whether you've ever found this in, a, in an argument with a friend or your husband or wife or one of your children, that we're very good at getting historical. We remember all the things that they've done, all the ways we count them up in our heads, all the times they've hurt us. But what about if we started to count up all the things that we've done? There'd be a lot on that list. I know there would be for me. You see, and this is where change begins. Even change in our society, in our city, we start, first of all, by addressing the sin in our own hearts. A few weeks ago on Pentecost Sunday, we were talking about the wonderful story in Acts chapter 2, where you get the you see the beginning of the church, the beginning of this grand movement that's spread around the world, bringing change. And we celebrate the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We celebrate thousands of people coming to Jesus on that day in Jerusalem. But what, if you read what actually happened in that story, it says the Holy Spirit came upon them and then they said this in verse 37, Acts chapter 2. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's a very violent phrase, cut to the heart. You see, I think what happened was when the Holy Spirit came, he brought a sense of his holiness and they were cut to the heart. They were suddenly aware of their own sinfulness. And if we want to change the world around us, we, we start, first of all, with ourselves, with our own hearts. And then we look around at our church family and say, well, what can we change here? We might want to look and, at the issues over there, the racism in other places. And as I said, it's okay to be angry about those things. But if you want to change things, the, the, the amount of change you'll be able to affect on another country, on systemic racism all around the world, the amount of change you can deliver is very little. But the amount of change you can deliver in your own heart with the power of the Holy Spirit is very great. So let's start, of all, start first of all by looking into our own hearts, addressing the issues in here. And when we realize the depth of our own sin, that's when we realize our need for God's mercy, God's grace. That's what happens in Acts chapter 2. They're cut to the heart 
And they say to Peter and the other apostles, what should we do? What can we do to be saved? And wonderfully, as believers in Jesus, we've received a wonderful forgiveness that comes from Jesus. And it's a wonderful, plentiful forgiveness. Talks in Psalm 23, it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. Jesus' plentiful mercy is pursuing you, even right now. His grace, his forgiveness is hunting you down, even this morning. And it's a free gift that he lavishes on us, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. And it's a free gift, but at the same time, it's also not free, that it's costly. There's a great cost of forgiveness. See, God is both gracious and he's just. He doesn't just brush our sins under the carpet. He doesn't turn a blind eye or pretend they're not an issue. But instead, Jesus paid the price for us. The redemptive price has been paid for you. It says in 1 John, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It says in Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, offered us his forgiveness, his mercy, and his forgiveness is like nothing you've ever heard of or ever seen. It says in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions or our sins from us. I don't know how far it is from the east to the west, but I think it's a very, very long way. That's how far he's removed your transgressions, your iniquities, your sins, all those evil, deep desires. He's forgiven them as far as the east is from the west. It says in Isaiah 43, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Isn't that remarkable that God chooses not to remember your sins anymore? He's chosen to forget them. It says in Micah 7, he again will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's such a wonderful picture. They use that picture in movies all the time. I don't know if you've seen a movie where uh, someone will, will throw something valuable and important like a set of keys or a wedding ring. They'll throw it into a river or throw it into the sea. And it's symbolically putting an end to something. It's saying that relationship is over. That season of my life is gone. Because when you throw your keys into the sea, there's, there's no getting them back. <laughs> They're gone now. There's something final has happened. And Jesus has, as it says here, cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. 
the punishment that was coming our way, Jesus has taken for us. And now we receive this wonderful forgiveness from him. And there's a wonderful, there's an application for us here this morning. Because you might ask, well, how do we, how should we forgive? Where it says that we should forgive as Christ forgave us. That's what it talks about in Ephesians 4. That's how we forgive. As Jesus forgave us. See, there's, it, this isn't the forgiveness we're talking about isn't a therapeutic forgiveness. Therapeutic forgiveness is all about making yourself feel better. That you forgive someone to, to in, kind of encourage yourself to sort of to help you to start uh, turn over a new leaf, to start a new place in your life. But actually, Jesus' forgiveness is the first step towards reconciliation. It's the first step towards rebuilding something. Jesus forgave us so that we could have relationship with him, that we could be reconciled with God. Perhaps the best way to understand how we can forgive people is to see it as four promises that we make. When you forgive someone, you make, you make like a, a, an agreement, a covenant. You make promises to them. First of all, you say, I will not dwell on this incident. Secondly, you can say, I will not bring up this incident and use it against you. Thirdly, you can say, I will not talk to others about this incident. And finally, you can say, I will not let this incident stand between us and hinder our personal relationship. Now, those four promises can sound a bit scary, if you're thinking of someone you know that's hurt you, you're thinking, how could I possibly forgive them? That might be a scary thing for you. But yet, there is a, that's how we've been forgiven. That's how we've been forgiven, that Jesus has forgiven us in exactly the same way. That he's chosen not to dwell on this incident. He's chosen not to use it against us. He's chosen to not talk about that incident in a sense he's chosen to not to let that hinder or stand between our relationship with him and it doesn't mean that there aren't still consequences for sin it doesn't mean that that's completely removed sometimes there are still consequences for the sin that's taken place but forgiveness is a it's a sacrificial thing it will be a, a costly thing to us. Sometimes it means we, we almost, in a sense, give up the power in that relationship. If you're holding out, if you're not willing to forgive someone, it gives you some, some power in that relationship. You can make them kind of grovel to you. Or as soon as you forgive someone, you, you hand away that power. But you also open up a way to reconciliation. When it comes to the issue of racism I was sending some messages to a, a friend of mine this week who's a black pastor in South London asking about his experiences and he said this to me that the pathway to peace remains reconciliation at the cross that, that's what we need in our world is peace and the way 
to that is by reconciliation at the cross. And one of the steps in that journey will be forgiveness. Now, there's another loads of questions we could ask about that. You know, should I forgive someone that's not repentant? That's an important question. And I think there are different stages to forgiveness. So there are some things we can probably just overlook, small little things that happen in relationships all the time. But I think it's important that we have, first of all, a, an attitude of forgiveness. Even if the person isn't willing to repent and, and ask for our forgiveness, we can come to them with an attitude, a commitment we make between us and God that we don't want to let that stand in the way. And then if they are willing to repent, we can grant them a full forgiveness and we can begin to restore that relationship. To help illustrate this, I'm just going to read a passage from a book that Dan is going to pass to me. He's having to do a long walk around the room. Thank you, Dan. Let me read you this story about a, a lady who lived in Harlem, just down the road from here, Corrie ten Boom, who she was imprisoned with her family by the Nazis, because in, in Harlem you can go and visit her house, the hiding place in Harlem, and read about their story, about how they sought to protect people in the home. They were discovered by the Nazis and taken to a concentration camp in Germany where her, her sister and her father both died. And she told a story of later how she met uh, a service, she met an SS guard, a Nazi guard. Let me pick up the story here. It says, he came to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, she said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Bloomingdale the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand and I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed this silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. So I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on him. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. You see, Jesus' forgiveness is all rooted in love. Let me finish by reading that verse again from Psalm 140. It says, For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Let me pray, and then the band are going to lead us in some songs of worship. Jesus, we thank you for your forgiveness, which is a we know it's a costly, it's a difficult thing, 
we don't want to take it lightly, but we thank you, you've forgiven us. All of us in so many ways have sinned, we've fallen short. We've done things to please ourselves, that have hurt other people. Ultimately, we've sinned against you. We've gone our own way and ignored you. And yet we can come to you this morning and receive your forgiveness afresh. Thank you, Jesus, that you've chosen not to remember our sins anymore, that you've cast them into the depths of the sea. Thank you for your wonderful grace. And I pray you'd help us to forgive as you've forgiven us.